millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I think everybody is the best writer in the world because if you can find your own voice, nobody else has got that voice. Hello, welcome to the second season of Write Off, the podcast about writing rejection and how people get through it. I'm Francesca Steele, a writer and journalist based in London. Chris Paling, a BBC radio producer, had an auspicious start as a writer, accidentally stumbling across a very starry agent with his first attempt at writing a novel. That novel didn't actually sell, though, and although others later did and received good reviews, Chris often felt despondent about publishing, and Nine Novels In began to keep a diary of his musings about the industry and his feelings about writing his current novel, Nimrod's Shadow, and so on. All this wasn't meant to be published, as you'll hear in this interview. It was just for Chris's peace of mind, really, and sort of a distraction when fiction felt hard. But it is now published as a very nice rejection letter, and has actually been one of the most successful things Chris has ever written, which he has found both comforting and strange. It's a lovely book, very funny and self-deprecating, and very good on why you really shouldn't go into writing for the money. One of the first things Chris charts is his annual accounts, and I quote, April 2007, writing income for the year, minus £300. Chris has written quite a few novels that didn't make it, and he's really good on that sort of sixth sense that something is working or not. We also talked about his encounters with the likes of Ian McEwan and Katsu Shigura at agent parties, and whether or not sharing an agent with writers like that made him feel inadequate or not. I also really loved Chris's comment that writers are like babies screaming for their mothers to pick them up out of the crib. That comment really stuck with me, so we discussed that. And we also talked about the conflict between writing being a dialogue with yourself and something you are desperate for other people to hear. I found Chris a really honest, insightful and gentle interviewee, and I really hope you enjoy listening to him. Before we get going, I just want to say something about Write-Off's sponsor this season. Dealing with rejection is just one part of a writer's life. Jericho writers are with you for every word. They're all about embracing the entire journey, rejections and all, and are committed to helping you hit your writing goals, whatever stage you're at. 
Their inspiring courses, editorial services and events have launched writing careers and members benefit from heaps of additional content such as video courses, masterclasses and weekly live online events, many of which I've enjoyed myself. By becoming a Jericho Writers member, you can get insight into the world of agents and publishers, power through your plot problems, level up your prose style and polish your submission before it lands in an agent's inbox. Plus, you'll be learning alongside a worldwide community of writers who will keep you motivated and on track, even when a rejection rolls in. Listeners of the podcast can get an exclusive 15% discount on membership by going to jerichowriters.com forward slash join dash us and entering the code WRITEOFF. I'll put that in the show notes. So here's Chris. So your diary begins in 2007 just before your eighth novel, Minding, came out. And some of this is in the book, but can you tell us a little bit about what prompted you to start writing the diary? I can't remember at the time. I think I I just started jotting things down. I, I just wanted to start exploring what was going on with the publishing because I'd been with Kate for seven novels and they'd supported me a long time. And then like a lot of people who don't sell or considered to be mid-list or whatever, they just, they get junked inevitably, you know, because the publisher's not going to support you when they're not making money out of you, or if you're not going to profile. My agent started to cast around for another publisher, and I just thought it'd probably be quite an interesting period to explore. So I just started jotting down observations and feelings, really, not with any intention of it being published, just making a note of what was going on, really. I made one entry and then I forgot about it for a few months. I thought, oh yeah, I was keeping a journal. And then I went back to it and I really started to enjoy the sort of journal form of it. And I became almost as interested in that as in the, the next novel I was writing. So it kind of, when I started writing novel number nine, I was writing this journal alongside it. And I think that's how it developed. Yes. I mean, you mention a few times that it's a sort of procrastination exercise, which I think all writers will be very familiar with in some form or another. Is that how it felt? I mean, actually, I think when you describe your writing process in the book, you sound like someone who in many ways finds writing incredibly enjoyable to do, novel writing, I mean. So in some ways, it surprised me when you wrote about the memoir as a, as a procrastination exercise, because I sort of felt like perhaps you weren't someone who needed that. I'm not sure whether I do find novel writing easy or pleasurable. I find journal writing really pleasurable and easy. And in a way, I was kind of using it as an escape from the novel. And I was enjoying writing the journal far more than the daily grind of trying to write 2,000 words on the novel. I think I, I did find novel writing, like a lot of people, incredibly difficult. And sometimes I wonder why I bother doing it because I enjoy the process of having written but not the actual process of writing sometimes I I, I don't know about you but when you're confronted with the screen first thing you think is it dead am I going to get it back to life how long have I got (laughs) I find novel writing really painful but I find journal writing really enjoyable because you're just observing what's going on around you so it was displacement activity which is fine because I think, as you say, displacement activity is is 90% of novel writing anyway, you know, making the tea, wandering around the house, having banal conversations with people. But it's all, the novel's processing away whether you're at the screen or not, frankly. Yes. 
the memoir is is very funny in what I would describe as quite a sort of British dour way. It, it is quite different from your novels in that way. You start off by saying your writing income that year had been minus £300, I think, because you'd paid your accountant. It, it feels like it was fun to write at the time, even when you had no aspiration to publish it. Yeah, it was great fun because in a way, I suppose it was... I don't know, was it getting back at the system or something or acknowledging that this is the reality of life for, for, for a lot of authors? You know, I think at the time, the average novel novelist was earning around eight to nine thousand pounds a year. And I thought, frankly, I thought that was really high because I only was eight to nine thousand pounds. <laughs> Very few authors actually make any money whatsoever. And I suppose it's a way of defending yourself, isn't it? If you can laugh at yourself, then other people aren't going to take the mickey out of you you know you're not a best-selling author whatever so i just wanted to acknowledge the realities of financial realities as much as anything uh, yeah i suppose it's, it's a way of self-protection in a way yeah and it's really interesting to read because i think we hear a lot about success you know sort of huge success stories six-figure sums and so on or yeah. books that are turned into movies we also hear about abject failure before or after those successes and so on. We don't hear a lot about that mid-list. No, no, because it's not a story really, is it? I mean, you know, as I said in the book, Man Writes, another book is not really going to grab many headlines. Yeah. You only do hear about the six or seven digit deals or the people who fail badly. You don't hear about the 99% of mid-listers who are grinding it out every day. Uh, and who are trying to make a living on the edge of his, edges of it by, you know, writing for the screen, writing for the papers, writing short stories, all the rest of it. This kind of workaday stuff that most most writers do to make a living, really. Yes, and you were a Radio Four producer, yeah. and you also talk a lot in the in the book about trying to write screenplays as well. Yeah, can we go back a little bit and? Could you tell me a bit about how you got your agent, quite a starry agent, Deborah Rogers, yeah, who yeah. you talk in the book about a party with um, some of her other clients, including Ian McEwen and Katsu Shiguru and so on. I mean, it's very funny, but that's quite something. That's quite an agent. How did that come about? I was just so lucky. I, I worked with them um, when I was a producer. One of my friends produced Start of the Week. And at the time, I'd written some radio scripts, radio drama scripts, and I'd had one performed on Radio 4, and then I wrote a load that they just turned down. So I thought, okay, well, I'll try and write a novel. And I wrote a novel really quickly in over about a year, and I showed it to my friend who at the time was doing Start the Week, and she said, oh, I think there's some merit in this, and would you be happy for me to show it to a friend? And I said, of course. She said, she's an agent. I said, well, fantastic. And then I got a letter about three or four months later from Deborah Rogers saying, I've read your novel, I like it, come and meet me. And I didn't frankly have a clue who she was, although I should have done. <laughs> and then I walked into this amazing, beautiful agency in, in North London and suddenly realised, my word, this is Deborah Rogers, got or had everybody that's worth having over the last 30 or 40 years. You know, Peter Carey, Jeanette Winterson, Angela Carr, everybody. She's had everybody. And she, we sat down, I, I, I really got on with her. We sort of got on straight away. I don't know why. And she said, look, I'm not taking anybody on anymore. I've got enough but I'll give it a go. I'll give it a go with you. And I said, that's amazing. So Deborah took me on and 
sort of nurtured my career until she died a few years ago, really suddenly and really sadly. But she was so brilliant to me. I mean, just so brilliant. We got on really well. The great thing about Deborah was, as I said in the book, she, she never really differentiated from the, from the real superstars and the rest of the list who weren't in the spotlight. She, I, I got the sense that she looked after everybody the same. Mm. And then the, the, they had a Christmas party at the agency every December, which was great. And I went there and over-refreshed myself somewhat. And <laughs> all of these literary superstars perched all over the chaise longs holding court. It was, it was just brilliant. I was just amazed to be launched into this world that I didn't really feel as though I sort of deserved to be a part of, really. Yeah, I mean, it's an endorsement, isn't it? It was, yeah. And she stayed with me all the way through. You know, she was a great editor as well as a great agent. I think that was a real strength. She was a very emotional, she went to the emotional heart of the book. It wasn't an intellectual exercise. She, she had an amazing understanding of the way words work somehow. And she would always go to the weakness in, in the narrative or whatever. But she was never prescriptive. Uh, it was, she was a wonderful person. So she took you on for, I think, deserters. Yeah. And then, and then it didn't sell, right? Which is, which is so interesting to hear about from somebody dealing with these, this incredibly strong list. Um, t- tell yeah. me a little bit about that and, and why you think that happened and how it felt. Because you're sort of um, brought high by getting this very starry agent and then it, it yeah. didn't sell. I mean, and I know what that feels like. You sort of feel like you're sorted when you've got an agent and then it doesn't sell it's quite a strange feeling how was that for you to be quite honest it was okay because for me the 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 triumph was getting the agent Mm. and when it didn't sell it wasn't um we haven't sold it you're never going to sell another novel it was just sort of this is just part of the process get on with it write the next one write the next one so (laughs) um at the time I wrote deserters I was then I then moved on to write the next one to be quite honest I wasn't in a way, sort of expecting deserters to sell, I don't think. Oh, um, why not? That's interesting. I don't know. I just wrote it. When I write novels, I don't, I don't think I always have an expectation they're going to sell somehow. Mm. Uh, when I wrote the second one, I kind of knew that wasn't going to sell. It wasn't that good. But parallel with that, I wrote two novels in parallel after deserters. I sent her the first one and she said, no, forget it. We'll pin that. I don't think it's quite as brutal as that. How uh, long had it taken? Do you mind me asking? Well, how much time had you spent? The second one probably took about a year, I suppose. But in parallel with that, I was writing the third one, and I knew that was better than the other two by a mile. So I sent that off to her, and very quickly she responded. And I remember her coming out of the office and big gleam on her face. She was carrying the manuscript. She said, "I can sell this." And then three weeks later, she'd sold it to Jonathan Cape, and that was the start of the career. So, <laughs> how amazing! That was that was an amazing meeting, and, and and I don't think there was anything in the career that ever quite matched up with that moment when I met her in the reception. So I can sell this, and yeah. So that that was terrific, and that was the beginning of the the seven novel run with with Jonathan Cape. When you were writing this third novel, which became your published debut, and you yeah. said you you felt that it was better. Why was that, do you think? Did you just feel as you were writing it, you had more experience? Was the plot more cohesive? 
I think every time you write, you learn how to write. And I think I started to write for different reasons. I think writing's obviously a dialogue with yourself. And I think you start accessing parts of yourself the more you write and understanding why you're writing, the need for writing. You get better technically and you alight on a subject matter that's sort of you're more comfortable with, you can express it better, you can make it smell and taste and do all the things you want it to do. Mm. Whereas the previous couple, they were just too slightly too distant from my emotional reality or the world I knew. Third one, there was something I managed to access, a part of myself that was more familiar and I was able to express that better, I think. I think that's why that one worked somehow. Mm, that's interesting. So that was your third and your second yeah. one. When Deborah said to you that she, that that just wasn't, that wasn't going yeah. to work. How did you feel at that point? I mean, in the memoir, you talk at various points, I mean, later in your career about this kind of push-pull between, oh, maybe I'll pack it all in if this one doesn't sell. Yeah, and, yeah. You know. um, did you have any of that push-pull then? Did you feel like giving up after, after that second one? Did you think, oh, gosh, this isn't really going anywhere? Or did, how did you carry on after this sort of second rejection? I just carried on because I think once you've got the writing bug, you, you, you've had it, you know, once you've got it, you never lose it. So if you've not done some kind of creative writing or something in a day and you're addicted to it, then you're never going to give it up, frankly, never going to give it up. Mm. Um, so no, that never crossed my mind to be quite honest. It was just, as I said, it, when I write a novel, I never have any great expectations that they're going to be published, but they all serve a purpose. You know, they're all part of that dialogue with yourself and yeah. published or not, you're going to go on, you're going to go, you're going to write the next one. I've, I've written, I've got a couple out there at the moment we're trying to sell that might well not sell, but I'm not that bothered about it you know they were they're just part <laughs> of the journey I mean it's so interesting to hear that and really important um and this idea of writing for writing's sake not publication's sake comes up a lot yeah. on this podcast I just yeah. want to talk about something that you say in the book which is those who feel the urge to write have a peculiar need to be heard in a certain way. If therefore you write and your books don't sell or reach an audience, then they're not doing the job. Seems a fatuous reason, but I think this is the core of it. Screaming in the dark for your mother to lift you out of the cot. I thought that was such a visceral image and very painful. And you're right, if you have the writing bug, you want to write. But screaming in the dark for the mother to lift you out of the cot, it's, it's hard not to stop the screaming, isn't it? I mean, it's a very painful image. Is that, how do you think that goes alongside that writer's bug? Yeah, that's, you picked a real raw bit there. It's an interesting one, that. Writing is the need to be heard as well as a, a dialogue with yourself. So I suppose if it was just a dialogue with yourself, it, it probably would be pointless. But within that, I suppose you feel you've got something to say that has got validity to other people, which is in some way, I suppose, using that metaphor is, is in some way healing to you, I suppose. Perhaps that's it. I don't know. I mean, I remember writing that and thinking, well, maybe... Maybe that is a bit too raw, maybe. But I wanted to leave it in. I've never explored it that closely, but I think that's probably, there is a healing element, a comfort element that comes back maybe from people 
reading your words, understanding them and getting something out of them, I think. Yes. Yes. I mean, it's a connection. And elsewhere yeah. you talk about all writers being flawed <laughs> yeah. um, because otherwise they'd get on with the business of living rather than um, watching other people and writing about them. I'm paraphrasing, right. but it's something like that. I mean, perhaps perhaps that's it. Perhaps the flaw is a need for a, for a different kind of connection. Maybe. Yeah, 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 definitely. So just coming back to the memoir itself, as you go on, you sort of trace the writing of your new book at that time, uh, Nimrod's Shadow. And, and yeah. in many ways, although we've mentioned some of the earlier rejections in your career, this sort of torturous process of writing Nimrod's Shadow is, is at the core of, of much of this memoir. You mentioned that you'd actually thrown away two manuscripts before even starting it, Wales and Human Resources. Can you talk me through that period of thinning those two manuscripts and then this period of writing Nimrod's Shadow, which is not does not go smoothly? <laughs> well, Human Resources, I wrote a book called The Silent Century, which was about a sort of Radio 4 producer who cracks up. It's quite autobiographical in a way. And Human Resources was a follow-up to that. Which I thought was okay, and it was quite hard. I got stuck with it, really. I had a discussion with Deborah, and she said, well, okay, yeah, we could. I'm sure we might be able to sell it, but maybe you should try something else, really. And she was probably right. So I moved on to a screenplay that I'd been working on for ages with a director, which became the basis of another novel. But because the screenplay was at the base of it, it never quite worked. So we got rid of that. And then I had the idea for Nimrod's Shadow, which, like the first novel that was published, suddenly had, I suddenly accessed something that I thought, yeah, this is going to work. I can taste it. I can smell it. I know the character. I can finish this. So that's how Nimrod's Shadow started. And, and yeah, that took a year and a bit, maybe. That was a complete novel, and I think that worked. But yeah, I think that works as a novel. I'm reading it at the moment and it's a, it's a great novel and it is very insightful. One of the things that's so interesting hearing about you, reading about you writing it, is you really get to the kind of grind of writing a, a novel. And right. it, I th you were writing on your commute, weren't you, from Brighton yeah. to London. So you had a specific period when you were writing yeah. every day. And some days you're distracted by people on the train. Some days you just feel that what you've written is rubbish. You, you know, you sort of hit a roadblock. And you mentioned earlier in this chat that you don't really enjoy writing in many ways. Tell me a little bit about that then, what it's actually like in the moment for you. And for a, you know, a year or longer, it's a long time to be sort of stuck trying to capture this image you've had, this smell and taste and character, and yet not quite enjoying it. I think it's when you start off with the fear, I think, as I said, when you open the computer and you think, you, you run back over the couple of paragraphs that you've done the day before, clean them up a bit, and then you try and start building another course of bricks on top of that. I think that's the difficult one. The first 15, 20 minutes, if those, that course doesn't go down smoothly and then you start worrying that the thing's died, once you've got your sort of momentum up, then, then I think it becomes enjoyable. Then you, the characters sort of just spring alive in your head. You go, oh, hello, good morning again, how are you? And then you, once they're up and running and awake, 
you then follow them. They, you don't lead them. If they're real, they'll be there in your head and they go, oh, okay, this is where we're going today. So you then kind of follow them in. I thought that's be, always been my process. Once they've woken up and started scurrying around the page, it's your job then to just sort of make note of what they're doing and try and stop them doing anything too ludicrous. <laughs> um, Have you, so, do you plan? No, I, I plan a loose narrative. When I start... I usually got an end point, but with Nimrod's shadow is quite tightly plotted. I plan sort of stage posts. I try and put in narrative tension and you've got to know where you're aiming at from at least, you know, a third of the way through, otherwise it's going to go all over the place. You read a lot of novels that you think this, this writer didn't know where they were quite aiming for at the end. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I think I don't plan tightly because my the way I write is very organic, but I plan loosely in terms of a narrative. On those days earlier in, in the first third where you're where you haven't got that momentum and you're yeah. worried about what you've written the day before or whatever, how do you pick yourself up and carry on? And especially if you're sort of grinding through and you've had a few books not sell and I mean, do you ever just sort of think, why bother and just not write that day? I mean, how do you keep going? Unless it's going so badly, because you're, you're aware of the process and you know how it works for you, then you just accept that it's part of the process. You know, it's, um, you know it will come right eventually. So that's why you pick, that's why you go on, you know, because you know it'll work through. And if it doesn't, then you'll put it aside and start something else. Hello, Writerish Podcast listener. I'm Daniel Ford, co host of the Writer's Bone Podcast and founder of the Writer's Bone Podcast Network. At least one person that I know of has called me the Norman Lear of podcasting, but I'm here to talk about our flagship, Writer's Bone. We're a literary podcast that believes in the power of the written word. My co-host, Stephanie Ford, and our Friday morning coffee host, Caitlin Malqui, believe that storytelling can excite us, educate us, and at its best, unite us. Our mission is to promote authors of all backgrounds, races, creeds, and experiences. Since 2014, we've had the privilege of talking to bestsellers, debut authors, screenwriters, actors and actresses, and so many others that embrace creative endeavors. We hope you'll subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, because we have no intention of stopping anytime soon. And our simplest, perhaps our best advice, keep writing, everyone. I think a lot of people worry about time-wasting. A few people will sort of say, okay, no, it's fine to kind of be in a book at the beginning because that's normal, you're learning. I think what's so interesting about what you describe in the book is sort of continually being prepared to do that. The other thing is when you're writing a book, you're distracted, aren't you, from mm. normal life, even when you're not actually writing. Do you worry about, yes, that wastage of time away from other things in life? No, not really, because I think being a partner of a writer can be really difficult. And I don't think that's acknowledged very much because when you really are in a book, there's always part of you that's in that book. Even if you're in the present, there's always, even if it's not conscious, there's part of you that's, is processing it. But in terms of time wasting, no, because, you know, that implies that there's no value to writing if it's not achieving being sold mm. and, and, and what I, I tried to get across in this 
in the memoir is that it's not about being sold. Writing's not about being published. Writing's about writing. It's about exploring yourself. It's, you know, publish, being published is great. And I'm really lucky to be published because I know a lot of people aren't. But I think if you solely get set out to write to be published, you're not doing it for the right reasons, you know, mm. relax into why you're writing and then you might start getting close to why you think you should be published. Then you will really start writing what you need to write. So no, I never consider it to be time wasted. No. I mean, what else would you do on the train? Frankly, you know, drink your four cans of lager, fall over, have a boring conversation, go to sleep. You know, it's three hours a day. You might as well use on the, on the breakfast commute. <laughs> well, I mean, frankly, you know, if you go, if you used to come up to Brighton over Christmas, there used to be this group called the BBC, which was the Brighton-based commuters. They used to get the eight eight fifteen, and then they used to start drinking on the eight fifteen a.m. Wow. Uh, all the way up to Christmas, and they would be absolutely hammered by the time they got to Victoria at about <laughs> 9.23. They were hardy commuters, they were. <laughs> One thing I kept on thinking um, reading the memoir was, if you'd had a mobile phone, would your books have been written? What do you think? If I'd had a mobile phone towards the end of the commute, it was mobile phones that destroyed my fragile concentration. So I did have a mobile phone at the end. And the books were written, but only, but I, I just, you know, it just made me so angry and still does when you're sitting on a train and you learn all of the intimate details of people's lives. I wouldn't have been using the phone, but I would have been party as indeed I was to the incredible details of pe people's lives, you know? Yeah. So yeah, that was what ultimately led me away from writing on the train. Can I take you right back to something you mentioned in the book as well, which is falling in love with writing as a child and finding yeah. it as a form of escape. I think you weren't very happy at school and so on. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I didn't have a very, it's not a misery memoir, but I was... Um, no, it's not a I misery went, memoir at all, actually. <laughs> I went to grammar school and I never really should have gone to grammar school because I was a bit thick, um, but somehow I got in. And I was always, <laughs> always at the bottom of the class. I was terrible at everything. Uh, and then one day I, I, I sat down at, my, at the desk in my parents' bedroom where I used to do my homework. And I wrote like 15 pages of a, what became a novel. And, I, and that, I loved it. I don't know where it came from. It just came and I, I found something here. And then I was doing English with this strange woman and we were studying Tess of the D'Urbervilles at the time. And I wrote about 20 pages in the back of my exercise book as a sort of homage to Tess of the D'Urbervilles, which I thought was quite good. And I showed it to her and, and she called me up to the desk and I remember it really vividly. And she, she said, well, what's this? And I said, well, I just wrote it. Basically, I was made to apologize for writing this what she just thought was an abomination, I think. I don't know. So that completely torpedoed that initial joy that I got from writing. And that was it, really, for over 10 years. I never wrote anything after that until my... No awful. Yeah, she completely stymied that flame of something that I thought I'd found something here and... So that was it, really. She uh, stamped the flame out for over 10 years. Yeah. It reignited because I was working for the BBC and I started writing short stories 
I don't know why I just sat down and started writing short stories. There was an old boy at the BBC called Mitch Raper who used to produce what Radio 4 used to do every morning called Morning Story, five mornings a week. And he was a fantastic old boy. And I sent him some stuff and he, he always, always responded with a, with a kind letter. And he wrote back to me and he said, I'm not commissioning this, but you can write. You know, he said, you can write, keep at it, learn your craft. And I think it was Mitch that led me back into writing. So I wrote loads of stories. They didn't publish, they didn't put any of them on. Eventually they did, but he sort of gave me that confidence to write again, which then led to a couple of radio plays and then to the novel, which then led me to Deborah Rogers. It's amazing, isn't it, how a person's endorsement can give you the confidence to write? Because... You know, we've talked through a lot of your career uh, with its ups and downs. And once that confidence had come, it kind of set off this momentum that means you've got the bug and you're never going to stop and so on. But actually, you need that initial person perhaps to give you or that moment or whatever to give you the confidence to set out to do that. And um, it is interesting when I have a person like that, too, in my life. And it's it's it can really help. Most people who write have probably got some one or two people who've given them that validation because if you're not selling and that's your primary objective and you don't understand why you're writing, without that, I suppose ultimately you will probably pack it in, ultimately. You look at the great writers who still, you read about Ma- Malcolm Lowry or Charles Bukowski, people like that, They've all had that and they still craved it late in their careers when they were writing less good stuff. They were still craving that validity from people that they trusted, really. You say something really interesting in the book about how you try to avoid getting two book deals, which I think is funny because I think most people would say that getting a two book deal would be their dream. Tell me about that. (laughs) Yeah, I always thought because my track record of publishing is checkered, I never really did want a two-book deal because I didn't want to have written a novel that they sold, Deborah or whoever sold, and then for them to say, well, we'll buy another one. And for you know, three or four years' time not to have finished it and to put that commercial financial pressure on a book that wasn't written, I'd much rather put it out there when it was written in an attempt to get it sold rather than having this potential debt that you would then have to repay in a few years' time. I think it would have... It would have cluttered up the process of writing, to be quite honest. Mm. Got so you don't like to be beholden in that way? Absolutely not. No, I mean, there were, there were a number of occasions where they where it was offered and I always turned it down. Am I right in thinking that that book that didn't sell first with uh, Deborah Deserters was later published? I think it was your yeah, second published became, novel. Became, yeah, it became the second novel, yeah. And yeah. so how did that come about? To be quite honest, I don't know. Um <laughs> <laughs> I think, I'm not sure that I rewrote it, but I'm not sure that she originally offered it to Kate. But when Kate had published After the Raid, which became the first one. This is Jonathan Cape, isn't it? Yeah, I think she just yeah. took a chance and said, how's about this one? And I don't think we'd offered it to them before. And uh, yeah, and Kate bought it as, and that was published as a second novel. Yeah, yeah. How interesting. And you hadn't changed it. That much. I don't think, no, I probably don't. Maybe I tinkered with it a bit, but fundamentally, it was was still the first novel. 
Do you think that the publishing climate had changed in some way or that you just got lucky or maybe the fact that you had, they had already published you gave them the confidence to publish you again? I don't think the publishing climate had changed. I think they thought after the raid did okay in terms of reviews, it was going to take me two years to get another one written. Let's try and capitalize on the interest of after the raid by getting something else out. I mean, it actually worked, but it was, it was worth a try. Um, so I think they published it quite quickly in the hope that maybe they could surf the wave of the first one. It was a reasonable strategy. We didn't quite, didn't quite work. <laughs> Can I just ask you a little bit about status? Because as you just mentioned, that was reviewed. I mean, many of your books have been reviewed well and, and quite widely. I mean, you do occasionally sort of skewer yourself with brief lines from some <laughs> chosen reviews in the book. But I think you're a bit mean to yourself. The reality is, is that you were actually reviewed quite well and quite widely. But also you had this agent who was representing these incredibly, incredibly successful writers. I wondered how you managed this sort of wobbly sense of status, or perhaps you didn't feel it was wobbly, where you're kind of doing well, but not as well as the people who you're sort of in reasonably close proximity to being represented by someone like that. Kind of know my place, do you know what I mean? I think <laughs> I am. Um... I think everybody is the best writer in the world because if you can find your own voice, nobody else has got that voice. And I've always felt fundamentally that I was a good writer, but I would never be Ian McEwan and Ian McEwan would never be me. Um, <laughs> he's technically probably better than a lot of them are, but I don't think status is that important, to be quite honest. It would be nice to for the books to reach more people, but no, I've never really been, I, I kind of know where I stand. And I'm happy with that. I'm happy with where I am. I'm happy with the fact that people are still prepared to read my stuff. And I get some nice responses from people. I've really enjoyed the more sort of journal form over the last couple of years. I don't think I've been insecure in terms of where I stand, to be quite honest. Do you have any advice for writers or would-be writers about how to improve? I mean, you've written, is it 10 or 11 books, published books now? Yeah. Is there anything you've learned in your writing um, that's made you significantly better or that you've learned from? Just write. write. You learn to write by writing. That's all I would say. And trust your instincts. Don't show your stuff to other people and expect them to give you that validity. Find it within yourself because when you're writing, you, you're fairly insecure in terms of what you're trying to achieve. And if you're giving it to somebody else to tell you whether you're succeeding or failing, that's their, that's their version of it. It's irrelevant. If you're ever going to show your work in progress, make sure it's finished before you show it. But writing, learning to write is writing. That's all it is. And also trust your instincts, trust your instincts, you know, you know how people interrelate, interreact. Explore that, you know, explore those conversations you've had with people, your insecurities and insecurities. Go a bit further into them, but just write. That's all I could say, really. Well, one last question then. Your book ends on a slightly tantalizing note because you've, within the memoir, you talk about the memoir becoming published and then you sort of end and you sort of suggest that maybe you won't write again. You said earlier in this interview that you have done and you've got a couple of things out there at the moment. What's that been like then? Despite toying with the idea of maybe not writing again, you've found yourself back there. It's been strange. The Wales novel that we jumped 
20 odd years ago. I got it out during lockdown. I was just going through some files and I found out, I thought, actually, this isn't too bad. And I spent sort of six months of lockdown rewriting it and sent it to my agent. And he said, yeah, I think this is really commercial. We'll have a bash at it. So that went out about four weeks ago to publishers. Very hard to get published. As you well know, it's all of your listeners or pod, pod people will know it's it's much harder to get published now than it was 15 years ago. If I'd have put that out there in this form 15 years ago, 20, it would have been published. There's no question. But now mm. I, I'm not sure. So I've got two novels that are doing the rounds and both of them, I think, had they been out there 20 odd years ago, would definitely have been published. But now I'm really not sure. I'm, you know, I'm not a new face. They're both fairly commercial. It's just the market is so strange nowadays. What do you think strange about it? I just think that the stuff that's selling is really hard to second guess. I don't think publishers quite know mm. where to pitch, how to pitch. There's no certainties anymore, really, for them. That The markets are just weird. Well, there's so. a lot of saturation and copycat publishing, isn't Definitely. there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And another novel by, you know, a middle-aged white bloke in his mid-60s ain't very newsworthy, to be quite honest. So unless you, <laughs> you know, have committed a crime or done something terrible or become newsworthy, it's quite hard, quite hard to find a story. And as, yeah. you, well, as you well know, as a journalist, everything, uh, you, if you want publicity, you've got to have a human story behind it, you know. So I need to find a good human interest story if we're going to sell this novel, really. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I mean, you do get those books that really sell off the back of some personal, well, you know, how well somebody's going to interview. Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. But you, you've sort of created that with your memoirs, haven't you? I, hope I mean, a very nice rejection letter is, is a talking point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, funnily enough, rejection letters have more interest than any other novel or any other book I've written, really. Um, which has been great, you know, it just seemed to have started some kind of dialogue around writing, which has been really great, considering it was never written to be published, you know. And I, I'm really lucky that people picked it up and seemed to have found some sort of validity in it. People who write, people who want to write, or people who just want to go along on the journey of, of a novelist, really. Thank you so much for listening to Write Off. If you enjoyed it, I'd be delighted if you fancied leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. That really helps people find the podcast if they've not heard of it before. Or on Twitter, where you can find me at Francesca Steele. Don't forget that I list my guests' books at my online bookshop, which is uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash Francesca Steele. Details in the show notes. If you buy books there, you are helping me fund this podcast. So thank you and see you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.